What's up people, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is the YouTube channel and podcast translating health and safety to help you save lives and save money. It's all about rebranding safety. We are here to challenge the stereotype, to challenge the gold standard over the top culture that we are stuck in right now. And we're doing it this week by talking all about drone safety with an expert, Rennie Campbell. Rennie Campbell is a director of Levitate Aerial Imaging and pilot of the drones himself. Absolute expert on drone safety. Drone safety has been all over the news lately. We remember those airport uh, images, images, incidents that we touch on in this podcast as well. Kind of like really delve deep into what it takes to be a kind of drone pilot. Uh, whether we can use it in other innovative ways to help us manage working at height maybe. It's a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into the podcast. Health and safety is almost a victim of its own success. We in a pressured regime of health and safety regulations. A huge fire engulfs a tower block in Children being forced to wear goggles to play conkers at school. Worst oil field disaster, 164 dead. Rebranding Safety, the modern health and safety podcast, crushing the stereotype. And your host, James McPherson. Right, okay, so Rennie, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, good to be here. No, no worries, no worries. I thought I'd have someone on that knows something about drones, because it seems to be absolutely all over the news lately. Obviously, there was that big thing, uh, and I'm probably going to get the airport wrong, I think it was Heathrow, was that the right one? It was a little bit at Heathrow, mainly Gatwick, though, before Gatwick. Right, uh, at Gatwick. Um, and, you know, I, I pretty much, obviously, because of what I do, pretty much live on YouTube. And I, I quite like Peter McKinnon. He made an episode about, like, he's Canadian, but he made an episode moaning about the changes in the law. So it just seems to be absolutely everywhere at the moment. So, yeah. Obviously, you're the expert, but why don't you just give us a quick kind of intro into you, you know, your history, how you got to where you are, what kind of brought you over to drones, or has it always been a thing, or what? Yeah, so it was probably about two to three years ago, I guess, I sort of became aware of the way drones were increasingly being used or could be used. Um, and I was at that point, they're working in energy management and you, know, you put a thermal imaging camera on a drone, you get some fantastic data on the performance of a building, for instance. But then I started looking more widely at that and thought the, the sort of potential for them in a commercial setting, not just in film and TV and so on, was um, was excellent. So. Took the took the leap, bought a drone, um, did the training, from from which came out with a civil aviation authority permission for commercial operations, um, which anybody offering commercial drone services needs to have, or they're operating illegally. Um, and really, over the last year, a couple of years, I guess it's been it's been developing the services and the capabilities. So that's building inspections, uh, mapping of large construction sites, along with filming promotional materials for you know property developers or or others um along with some some event work as well um so it's yeah it's been a fascinating journey and the, the technology itself is changing so quickly even in the three years i've been involved the difference in what the drone can do um is, is quite staggering and that's only going to increase uh, in the future mm. was it hobby first or was it all at the same time no, it was just I'd never really sort of taken much 
sort of hobby interest in, in these things, but just it was really more this kind of business opportunity. Mm. And to be honest, it's a little bit more entertaining being outside, flying drones and sitting in an office as well. So that's a, you know, a bit of a bonus. Okay, so you're like a, you mentioned there about being like Civil Aviation Authority, like certified pilot. What, what yeah. what's, what's the Civil Aviation Authority for those of us that don't know? And, and what does it mean to be like a certified pilot then? So that's the body who effectively regulates the UK's national airspace. So they decide who, who, who can and can't fly, where you can fly. They're put in restrictions. So they regulate, they're the regulator for the air industry. Um, and they have that same role for unmanned aerial vehicles as well, UAVs or drones. So a hobbyist, you or me, without the qualification, can buy a drone, can fly a drone. Those are quite restricted in where you can do that. But about, I think maybe uh, probably five, six, seven years ago, CAA started to realise there was a need for a more sort of regulation of the commercial services. Mm. Uh, and so introduced this, this process. So I went through a training course. I then had to um, generate an operations manual which regulates how I run the business, what safety measures I have in place, what drones I use, and I have to get that renewed annually, effectively like a driving license or you know, commercial commercial license to operate. Um, so anybody commissioning a drone operator has must ensure that they have this permission for commercial operations, otherwise that drone operator is operating illegally, and potentially it could even come back to the business who's, who's hired them um, if they don't have those right. Uh, permissions in place. Oh. Sorry, did you say that was for just commercial, or is that for so um, that, people doing it as a hobby as well? As a hobby, no, you don't. At this at this point in time, you don't need any registration or qualifications to fly a drone as a hobbyist. Oh. Um, that is actually changing from I think it's the end of November when all drones over I think 250 grams have to be registered with the Civil Aviation Authority. They have a, a launching a, a website to do that through. And you'll have to take an online t safety test to show that you understand the drone code, which is therefore where and how you can fly that drone safely. Wow. Okay. Wow. It just, it just, they seem to be everywhere. I mean, pretty much every big like travel vlogger and it, it has those kind of cinematic shots. But like you kind of mentioned about like their potential for businesses and stuff like that. So. You know, I always just thought it was cinematic shots. I remember coming across yourself and, and seeing what you do, and I was thinking, oh, that must just be in the film industry, surely. But, like, you actually do loads of com commercial work. So what? How would, a, how would a business kind of use or could use you? So basically drones are a fantastic way to collect data. They're just a really good tool. Um, so if you have a need to understand the condition of a building or a roof or somewhere that's awkward or dangerous to get to, a drone can collect brilliant data on that piece of land or building far more quickly, safely and probably cheaper than actually having people do it. Um, so you can generate very high quality imagery for a building inspection. Um, you can then start actually from that imagery, you can map and merge together those images into a single orthomosaic map from which you can take very, really quite accurate measurements from. You can convert that, that data set effectively into a 3D point cloud or model. So you can start doing some really interesting things. Um, so I did one of my bigger projects with a construction company building a new marina. Um, you know, quite a large, it's going to have 120 odd canal boats. And I mapped that whole site. So it's probably a couple of drone flights, several hundred images, several hundred images, merge those together. And from that, I could then generate a 3D model of the marina before it was filled with water. So they've got a permanent record of 
that marina empty. So if they ever need to go back and say there was an issue with a particular area or whatever, or the size or the measurements, they've got that now. Um, and it's, you know, that drone was in the air for probably half an hour. Get to somebody on land doing that to get the same you know, quality or extent of data, it's probably a couple of days. Um, so they can do some really clever things very quickly. Um, you know, it's, it's not as accurate as a proper laser measured survey, but you, you can get it to within 95, 98% accuracy, uh, which in many cases is good enough. Wow, that's cool. So, so, do you think along, along with all the video, the, the cool photos and the, and the imagery and the filming and everything else as well. So Yeah, it's amazing what they can do really, isn't it? I, yeah. what, so you mentioned about like using it to kind of like do inspections of like dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, places. So do you think there's, is there, is there room for them to kind of eliminate quite a lot of work in that height or is, is it already being done or is it something that, we in the health and safety industry could start considering a bit more or? Um, I think probably a bit all of that, it is happening increasingly. Um, okay. you know, a lot of surveyors now now called have drones within their armory. Um, so it's another tool, data collection tool for the surveyors. Mm. Roofing companies similar. Um, but certainly if you need a detailed visual assessment of a structure or a site or whatever, then a drone is often the quickest, fastest, cheapest, safest way to do it. Um, so yeah, and it, you know, I did a job for the, it was a sort of building site inspection survey of a NHS facility. And I don't think they'd used drones before and they were quite surprised by the extent of data they got from you know, a couple of hours on site. Hmm. And, they, and so if, if we, if say I, I had a surveyor business then and my surveyors, I thought, oh, I'm going to get them drones, they would have to do the same training as what you've done. They would, yes. If they were offering it, offering it as a commercial service, they would need yeah. to have that CAA permission. Yeah. Mm. Is that a costly thing? Well, I mean, you don't have to tell not us. But... Usually it's, it's a lot of it. The, the training itself is not particularly costly. Um, mm. There's many providers out there that are, you know, who offer it all over the country. Um, the expense is obviously buying the technology, um, and particularly the drone frame itself is not the most expensive. It's the camera and the sensors you put on the drone that tend to be the most expensive. So if you're putting thermal imaging cameras on or very high capacity zoom lenses, they can mm. cost many times more. You're looking many thousands. Um, and again, it depends where you're operating. So they're increasingly used offshore to inspect wind turbines. So those drones off there, you're probably looking at a bit of equipment that's 60 to 100,000 pounds, can operate in high winds, bad weather, fly off boats, all sorts of things. But if you're just mm. doing you know, more traditional on-land survey work, then you can have a, you know, have a set for a few, you know, very good kit for a few thousand, a couple of thousand. Mm. Mm cool man they look cool as well <laughs> like <laughs> I, I reckon if i was flying one i'd feel like i'm i don't know there was no you think of um what was that film minority report or something yeah. like that is you know, i robot or something um okay so like is 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 there like you know, you've got all these kind of laws around them and restrictions on them and like is, is there like a an actual risk like what is the risk of like flying a drone is it like obviously it's a risk to you like an asset wise if you lost a drone that would be quite costly i suppose depending like on what yeah. you got on it but like what what could actually go wrong i know that sounds naive but i know nothing no, no, about no, them it's a good question because you know gotta guess you've got, got to remember they are remarkably reliable and mm. 
you know, most, a lot of the training and the qualification is around actually understanding the risks of flying drones, identifying those risks, and then putting in place measures to mitigate them. Mm. Um, so that might just be actually getting the right permissions in place, um, notifying the right people. So I flew about a mile and a half from the, the Gatwick runway a couple of weeks ago, um, which was quite fun. But actually, <laughs> called up air traffic control in advance. They gave me permission. Um, notified Sussex Police. I didn't have to, but it was good practice because then if they get any queries and say there's some idiot flying a drone you know, a mile from the runway, they know actually it's a legitimate operation. Um, right. The weather was good on the day. There was no rain. The wind was low. Um, I called air traffic control before and after I'd done the flight. And basically, it's really trying to you know, identify those risks, put measures in place to, to reduce them as with, with most things. Um, and mitigate them. But you've got to remember that they are flying computers effectively, so computers can go wrong. Um, and when they do go wrong, most drones, they're four rotors. If one rotor fails, they could become a flying brick. Um, <laughs> and then, well, you can get other drones which have six, eight rotors, which have sort of built in sort of fail safes or multiple batteries. So if one fails, then it's not going to come down. Also, you can also now get actually parachutes for drones. So okay, cool. um, they you know, deploy automatically if something goes wrong, if there's a battery failure or, or whatever, and bring that drone down in a safer, in a safer manner. So basically, it's, it's really, yeah, as with, with all these things, the risk is probably flying in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, doing something stupid, flying over busy roads, buildings. You know, I often do, you know, had a number of jobs where in the summer, be on site at 6, 6.30, done the flying, finished by 7, because by that means you can avoid people and you're not flying over people, cars, mm. all the rest of it, and it's much safer. So you really just have to adapt, adjust and adapt your operations to, to mitigate those risks. Mm. I suppose if you're flying in a, in a not densely populated area, it's not too much of a risk, but if you were yeah. in the middle of London, city centre, I suppose it would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? If it that... is, yeah, I mean, the city centre London is probably one of the hardest places to fly in the UK because you not only need Civil Aviation Authority, National Air Traffic Control Authority, but also the Met Police. Um, mm. This is all some very tight, all around the diplomatic and political sort of Mm. Westminster and also the City of London so it's all possible but you need to go through loops processes and hoops yeah um, mm. but yeah it's a construction big construction site kind of in a brownfield or greenfield area then that's nice and easy usually you can use words it about yeah, yeah. Is, are people more nervous or uptight about them obviously since we had like kind of like the Gatwick and Heathrow incident um like what about and, and like public perception of them as well has that yeah. changed or I think it took a hit around there, understandably. Um, it was a very strange situation there. Um, mm. But I think perhaps there's beginning to be a bit more understanding that actually drones are regulated. They were regulated before the Gatwick incident happened. Um, mm. So, you know, unfortunately, with a bit of technology, you're always going to get somebody who can do something stupid or illegal with it um, mm -hmm. to stop that, whatever it is. Um, and it's the same with drones. Though the manufacturers are putting in measures you know, to fly near Gatwick or an airport, I need to get note. I need to have the drone is is geo locked, so okay. I wouldn't take off within that Gatwick area unless I had the right permissions. Oh, that's cool. So there's all sorts of that, though they you know, they can always be hacked, I suppose. But so the industry is, you know, industry wants to operate safely. Um, mm. So is yeah. 
So did there was there any like legislative change before? The, like you said, there was law before. Did it did it change afterwards or? Um, I think it was probably going to change anyway. It, it might have oh, speeded okay. up. They just changed the the sort of perimeter distances around airports where you needed permission to fly. Oh, okay. So you always, if you're within, I think it was a kilometer or a certain distance of an airport, you always needed permission anyway, and that was just mm -hmm. extended further out, particularly at the, the at either end of the runway. Um, so, but yeah, I'm flying this week just near Cambridge um, within what they call the runway protection zone at Cambridge Airport. And again, speak to their traffic control there early. They've got the relevant measures in place. I've got the permission, so it's all going to be fine. Speak to them on the day to make sure nothing's changed. Um, but equally, hobbyists would not get permission to fly there, and that would be illegal. Oh, okay. I don't know whether I'm just being stupid, but I, I can't I can't remember Cambridge ever having an airport. Yeah, that's it's more of a sort of private one, and I think they do. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I was like going through the list of airports in my head, like, no, <laughs> never remember seeing Cambridge there. It's not a big one, no, but still oh, it has okay. the same, even the small ones have these same safety measures. Yeah, restrictions. Okay. Yeah. We've got like a, a, like a wee one around the corner from where I live, uh, Cywell Airport. Um, I think that's just like private and they do like a lot of like old military planes and stuff like that. Oh, they um, all have these same, same restrictions. Hmm. So. Interesting. So, but I suppose the the training side of thing then that you that you did was that more. I suppose the training of flying a drone was probably quite easy. I suppose is the training more heavily focused on like kind of the mitigation, the assessing of the risks and and yeah. the legal requirements and stuff like that. Absolutely, yeah. It covers all of that. How to do risk assessments, site surveys, understanding of the air navigation order, um, you know, interpreting weather charts air charts, wow. all sorts of things, and that was sort of three, you know, three or so days on that, followed by a test, um, and then there was also a practical flying test as well to make sure you could actually fly the thing safely. Mm. So. Was it much more heavily focused on the on the other side as opposed to actually physically flying it, I suppose? Yes, it was. Oh, okay. And so three to four days, wow. The whole quite... thing, yeah, including the test was four days. Yeah. Wow. That's quite long, actually, isn't it? It's quite... Yeah, it's pretty intense, um, but... Yeah, it's a good, it's a good course. Cool. So, if if you were gonna if you're gonna kind of fly a drone, kind of now, or I, I was to ring you up and say, right, I want to do this. Like, what kind of? I know you, you've probably touched on it, but like, what are the kind of things going through your head? Just out of my own curiosity, really. Like, yeah. what what is that kind of risk assessment you're doing, and what's the legal requirements you're doing? Questions that you would ask, say, for example, if anyone was listening to this podcast and and they were thinking actually i think i can use this drone like what kind of things would they need to be providing you and yeah and that kind of process you know like pre-flight kind of stuff yeah that's a lot of the work goes into that so that's the first thing is the location and mm -hmm. once i know the location postcodes i can then determine if it is within any flight restriction areas if it is then it's a question of can those be permissions be gained or not um and then it's understanding what job actually entails what's the site like is it a school a hospital a construction site a field and then kind of that will inform what sort of risks the, there are going to be and how those might be mitigated so i do yeah i did some flights and filming at a school in wimbledon over the summer and yeah i think i started at sort of 6 30 and was finished by 7 30 before anybody got on site because someone's and me they didn't want you know kids coming in for their summer camps to be have a drone whizzing around over their heads. <laughs> so it's understanding the site, the location, 
permissions, notifications, how those might be mitigated, if there are any neighbors that might need to be talked to. Um, so for a, a commercial operator, you can legally fly within 50 meters of buildings, people, cars, um, effectively a sort of 50 meter bubble around the drone. Um, you can go as close as you want or as you deem safe if you have those people or vehicles, what's called under the pilot's control. So if you have, if it's a construction site and they've been briefed and they know the drone's there, they can tell their, you know, people on site, follow the instructions, stay away from it. I can go in, you know, really close, get some good close-ups. If it's in a more built-up area, neighboring houses, gardens, streets, then you might need to set 50 meters. Um, but for hobbyists, that distance is 150 meters. So as a hobbyist, you really can't fly in towns, cities, even villages, you need to go and find some big open spaces. Oh, wow. And I, I suppose, I suppose as a hobbyist, you'd probably want to fly more in like the cities and stuff. That'd be cool. It would um, be. And there's been some, you know, some lots of videos on YouTube of people flying down Oxford Street. Um, but then they've had a visit from the police. No, really? Jesus. Um, and that's the, I think that a lot of the police, police forces are beginning to crack down on that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you can't have anybody just start, yeah, flying around towns, probably don't have insurance, um, probably flying beyond visual line of sight, which is illegal. Um, and they have to keep within 500 meters of the, of the pilot. Um, oh, okay. You have to stay below 400 feet as well, because anything 500 feet is the minimum height for helicopters, civilian helicopters. So try and keeping a, a distance there. Um, uh, okay. But you've always got to be aware. I was you know, in the field where I practice, um, just about to prepare for a, for, a, for a practice flight and an air ambulance just came by and landed 50 yards away. So, Jesus. Put your wits around you as well and understand what could happen. Does the drone kind of measure that and inform you or do you have to do that by like just That's visual it. references? Or? Yeah, it's visual referencing. I think from next year, DJI, the, it's next year, the main manufacturer of drones for commercial and hobby use is going to have what they can call transponders on their drones, which do emit signals as civilian aircraft and helicopters do already, which will mean that there's going to be some automatic identification of, you know, as with other aircraft. And so that's the way it's going that you know, the drone, hopefully I would receive on my, my screen, a notification saying you know, something coming close. Get out of <laughs> You don't receive a notification currently saying how high you are, though. Well, you get yes, you get all the flight data, so I get my oh, okay. data, speed, distance, um, but not if anything else is in the same airspace. So oh, I think okay. It's something that is going to change, which is all good. Okay, and I suppose does all that data change? Like, if you go and get just a cheap drone, yeah, you no, you're not likely to get all that kind of information. Yeah. Well, the, the little toy ones that you know, this was around in your garden again. I think below anything below about 250 grams is not doesn't have the same level of regulation because 250 grand yeah grand grams so in weight oh i thought you said grand <laughs> no, i was like jesus size. christ <laughs> <laughs> you could buy a house <laughs> <laughs> no these are the, the tiny little toy ones so they're not okay. So they measure by like weight. Then is that is that kind of like the grading system? Is it like cheap ones? Again, the, all the drone regulations are going to change next year. Um, yes, okay. again, um, and it's going to be more of a risk-based system. It's not quite clear how that's going to be implemented yet, mm -hmm. but a lot of it will be on what is the risk of this drone in this area, and that will be based on 
you know, the weight of the drone um, and where you're flying it. Okay. So hmm. it's 250 grams and it lands on you or a car, it's not going to really cause too much damage. But if it's no. my bigger drone is nearly four kilos, it could really? get so, oh. Yeah. And if that's falling down from 500 feet in the air. Exactly. Yeah. At a fair old speed, I suppose. Yeah. It's interesting that, like, how much does a drone cost? Like a commercial, good quality one? Um, Are they expensive or? I mean, a good, decent one depends. Again, depends what you're looking to use it for. Um, mm. I've got got a couple. The newer one was just over a thousand pounds. Actually, is is a great wee thing um, at Mavic. Um, but you know, if you're looking, a lot of the people doing film, TV work will have a bigger Inspire two which with the right cameras and lenses, you're probably talking six, seven, eight thousand pounds. Mm. I find it fascinating that they don't have, I just keep thinking of um, this video I saw on Facebook a while ago of um, of this guy like running through this lake, like obviously wasn't very deep because he's he kind of, you could tell he's doing that water walk, you yeah. know, not, he's not really swimming, but he's trying to run through this water. Um, and the video is being recorded by a drone that had lost power, um, so the battery is dying, and it was just slowly coming down to the ground, and it was going to land in the middle of this lake, and he just gets there just in time, puts his hand out and grabs it. I just find it fascinating when you said about the new ones having um, potentially like parachutes and other stuff. I find it fascinating that they don't have them anyway. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah you know you're a grand and it runs out of battery you'd be like because we all push it don't we we do it with our cars you know it yeah. goes, goes in red and you think nah be all right i've got another couple of miles we not- must do that with batteries as well well that's where it gets you've got to understand how the batteries work so you know the older the battery is the less life it has so even though it may say 20 sure. percent on you know on my screen mm. that battery has been used a lot it's been you know, a couple of years old lots of flights it may suddenly go from 10 to zero. So part of it you have, I have alerts set up when the battery gets to 20%, I get alerted and then it's time to come home because you don't want to be landing on 5%. Yeah, yeah. You can go from 10 to zero in a few seconds. Before really? you know, you've lost your drone. So battery management is a big part of flying drones as well. Yeah. It's quite a lot to think about, isn't it? Like, yeah. like you don't, Obviously, you've got the kind of customer's client requirements in your head and, and the actual job that you're trying to do. And then you're also f- trying to think about your drone and, 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 you know, how you're flying it in the battery and also trying to keep visually aware of what's going around you and, and all the stuff like your requirements and stuff. And then, like you say, a bloody air ambulance just pops up out of nowhere. Yeah. That's so just not, nuts. I think, yeah, there's a lot of people who sort of buy a drone I think I can do all this stuff without that's why the course is one of the major benefits of the course is actually makes you aware of all the stuff all the things you need to be understanding and aware of yourself when you're flying mm. and it's not maybe as simple as you might initially think it must be quite tiring like you know like when you, you're driving for a long time it's not the act of driving that that, that like ties you out but that kind of you're always looking aren't you and thinking and processing so you know a, a full day of I don't know, doing a, a drone job in a busy area. God, you must get home quite mentally tired as well. Yeah, it is. It's it's pretty intense. Yeah. When you're doing that, yes, it is. Cool. Do you enjoy it? Yeah, I do. It can be, yeah, say pretty intense sometimes, but, yeah. you know, I do some, been to some great places. I was filming just on the bank, near the banks of the River Thames, 
last okay. week, Greenwich. So one way you look, you've got amazing views of Canary Wharf, another way is mm. the dome. Other direction down towards Greenwich, the Maritime Museum, um, Crystal Palace Tower in the distance. So you can get some, you know, you get to go do some really, really fantastic things as well as, you know, the mapping or the modelling or the filming as well. Mm. So what like kind of, uh, you mentioned like like th- thermal imaging and stuff like that. Is that something that you do? Or what, what what would that what would that be? What would you do? Yeah, like... so it's not something I capable to have at the moment. Um, okay. So basically, you can put a thermal imaging camera on the drone, um, and so at a sort of you know, emergency services, fire and police are increasingly using thermal imaging for emergency operations. That might be missing persons hunts. It could be actually tracking down somebody they're chasing. They can get a drone in the air, thermal imaging camera at night. It will follow that person if he's hiding in a garden shed or wherever, um, mm. or a fence. And it's, you know, increasingly, I think with future we'll see more of it. Police squad cars will eat, will have a drone in the back, and rather than have lots of police officers chasing around the streets trying to find somebody, they'll get a drone in the air and track that person down. Fire services use the thermal imaging um, both to identify people in a building, but also to look at to try and find the hotspots of a fire um, and where actually the really intense, dangerous points are, which may not be just visible with the naked eye. Um, so they're used increasingly for the emergency services. Um, in terms of more building construction, you can use them if you get the good enough quality thermal thermal camera for leak identification, um, for heat loss assessments. Oh, so, wow, wow. so if you have a leaking pipe underground on your property, chances are if you get the conditions right and the right camera, uh, thermal camera, you can use that to identify it, uh, which is a lot easier than digging up the length <laughs> of a pipe until you find the right bit. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, you know for, for, yeah, for thermal assessments yeah. uh, as well. So what, what kind of... What kind of industries you, you get in your work from? Is it mostly construction or? It's sort of property related mainly. So it's construction, um, property developers, um, and sort of people connected to that. So surveyors, roofing companies. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, and most of that is kind of like mapping of, of, of new, new areas or new builds and, yeah. and assessing current properties. And a little bit of setting current properties or old buildings. Um, it can be actually just promotional, promotional film of the construction site in action. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Or you know, the one in near Gatwick was big new data center, and they were you know had some massive crane putting some cooling units onto the roof. Um, so coming actually the drone to film all of that and get the context of the, the building as well. Hmm. So what goes? I, I imagine in comparison. Uh, like a mapping job or an assessment job is uh, much more difficult than than your commercial and um, like just creating footage for an advert or something like that i suppose a mapping is is that one of the more complicated jobs um not necessarily it's probably more work in advance so okay. i can with the right programs i will actually if i'm mapping a large area i can actually develop and define the flight path in advance so i say i want to put the flight parameters this is the area i need to have mapped map and the software I use will then determine the flight path. I load that onto the drone when I get to site and it will go up and it will take images every couple of seconds to get you know, however many, two, three hundred, seven hundred overlapping images which you then download and process. So in some ways the mapping on site can be a little more straightforward. There oh, are okay. 
if you're doing filming and flying around an area, you know, there's more things to potentially get in the way of, hit people, all the rest of it. Whereas mapping a site can be fairly, it can be, you know, it's a bit more planned and organized. Oh, okay. That's, that's funny. I would have thought it'd be the other way around. Yeah. Oh, interesting. You can program, if you're doing a mapping in a specific area, you can do the program it in advance and the drone will fly that, fly that path for you while you iterate and focus on other things you know let's make sure there's nobody else flying <laughs> coming into land do you have to like do you, so you have to do like a, a risk assessment per job do you have to record that or like yeah, is it... so every, today's been a day full of risk assessments for the jobs this week um, oh, okay um so i do pre-flight sort of research the location do a risk assessment and then once i get on site the first thing to do is a site survey so I have a walk around see what the risks are, if there's trees or pylons or high buildings or, you know, a crane that you weren't expecting, for instance, um, all sorts of things, things that might have an impact on the job. Um, and only then, once you've done all that, decide whether it's safe to fly or not. Mm. And I suppose that, is that in conjunction with the with the customer or is that something you do on your, you can do on your own or? No, usually, ideally with the customer, because they know the site, they know, particularly if it's a construction site, they know who's operating there, what's going on. You know, they've got the permissions and they sort of have control of it. So you need to get their, you know, their, their input as well. Mm. Is that required under the CAA or is that, would you have to do that like under the same as I would with any other piece of work, like a like health and safety at work act or, or management regs? Um, this is sort of a requirement of certainly what my operations manual, um, mm -hmm. which I think it probably also would be a requirement of any insurance claim. So if I didn't do all of these things and then tried to claim if something went wrong, um, that claim would probably not go very far if I hadn't taken done all these assessments. Sure. But yes, the CAA would expect expect that to be completed as well. Okay. And would the would the client have to do their own? I would assume they would have to do their own risk assessments the same as as they would do anything else, or would it be in conjunction with yours or? Um, it depends on the client, really. Some have quite strict procedures. Um, mm. So I flew on some some land for a client on behalf who was working on behalf of the National Trust, yeah. and they have a very formal process to go through, um, at which I have to submit my risk assessment to them, and they need certain information from me as well. Whereas others, um, they're happy just for me to do my own assessment and uh, and, and use base it around that. Okay. Do you find it's quite like for your your customers? it's all still quite new like i feel like we don't hear enough about we don't really understand the potential of these things like, you know we've had another conversation before now it's just absolutely in awe of like how much we can actually use these things you think there's 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 work that people customers like people like us need to start maybe considering drones yeah. as like an actual viable method of well from my point of view reducing work at height for sure yeah yeah i think so i think you know most actually you know, there's a lot of drone operators out there, you know, many thousands, but I think most of the clients I've worked for, I think I may be the first one or they've very rarely used drones before. Okay. So I think there is a big untapped market out there mm. um, in industry sectors that perhaps didn't think they were relevant, um, mm. but could make, you know, could actually bring some value. You know, just it's, it's another, particularly, particularly health and safety, it's another tool that you can use to get jobs done while keeping things, yeah, keeping people safer. Yeah, definitely. Especially that kind of inspection, kind yeah. of. I wonder whether, like, 
I mean, I don't know, but if you had to, I was thinking like of kind of like the listed properties that I've managed in the past are like these massive, massive buildings, and to kind of well, and you would you would never inspect the roof like ever. Yeah. You, only if something went wrong would you would you be like, oh, maybe we should go and have a look at the roof, um, or you might do it from the inside if you could. But like maybe if we had a kind of you know ongoing contract or we had our own drawing pilots within the business you'd probably do stuff like that more regularly help us become more um what's the word i'm looking for proactive yeah absolutely i think you know you do a you know, every few years whenever you do an assessment a drone or an aerial assessment of the roof you can actually then start you can do the same uh, repeat the flight effectively get the same set of data and then you can start comparing any degradation any changes and start a proactive it becomes part of your proactive maintenance program, mm. uh, your maintenance refurbishment, and so on as well. Yeah, mm. I should imagine the en- energy sector, and like you were saying about the utilities and gas and all that, being able to inspect leaks. I should imagine like the electricity industry as well, like yeah. inspecting pylons and stuff like That's, that. It must yeah. be. I think the National Grid has their own drone unit in house. Oh, okay. Right. Solar panels, solar panel farms as well, they use mm. to check the health of these thermal imaging cameras to identify faults in solar panels. Okay. Cool. So, rather than having somebody go around every single panel in, in these vast vast solar farms, they can get a drone to do it, collect that data and highlight any anomalies, any issues of concern. And they're, cool. I think, starting to do it as a regular part of their maintenance program. So they might go around every few months. And so they can see any changes over time as well. So I suppose there's a big, there's a big, you you would have to, you would have to be using the drones quite a lot for it to be cost effective to bring it in house. I suppose. Yeah, probably. If you're doing it once every year or once every couple of years. It's probably better off to go external. Would it be? Or I think so. Just partly also the legislation is changing. Most, you know, it seems at the moment it's been changed a lot in the last year um, mm. so you have to keep your operations manual up to date with those regulatory changes as well so mm. if you're not kind of on top of that it becomes yeah, it's, it's probably not not worth not worth the effort of doing it yourself if you're flying and you know doing it once every couple of weeks once a week then then it probably starts to make it worthwhile to bring it in-house um, but it depends if you want to keep that sort of those qualifications and have a qualified pilots as well as having a a valid operations manual that is updated and reflects the latest in the legislation too. Mm. Do you have to refresh your license just out of curiosity? Or yeah, is it like- so it's, it's an annual, so every year I have to resubmit my operations manual and that has to reflect any changes in regulations over that past past year. Oh, okay. So, so it could be quite, quite costly then if you were to bring it in house. It could be quite a costly thing. Yeah, and it's not as easy as people might initially think because there's yeah. it is a regulated industry. Um, mm. So yeah, as with you know, all these mm. things, paperwork is quite extensive. <laughs> so. mm. did, did when you when you kind of come out of your training, were you kind of like were you, were you shocked as a kind of the amount of stuff that you need to consider? Were you, or were you expecting that when you went in or? Um, I think probably a bit surprised. Um, yeah. The range of factors you have to have to consider. Um, yeah, it's you probably come out like shit. It's not as easy as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's what's the kind of uh, you don't have to tell us the customer's name, but like what if you can? What's the most like interesting or curious kind of job you've done, or your your favourite job you've done so far? Um, 
I've done a few jobs for a company called Land and Water, a construction company who specialises, probably as the name suggests, in things around water. So that's dredging, piling, building marinas. And we did mm. uh, um, did a project for them. They were doing dredging at two and a half mile stretch of the River Way in Surrey, part of the National Trust. Um, and we used the drone to inspect the riverbank before and after. So basically okay. the National Trust wanted to make sure there was no damage done to the riverbank through the dredging. So it was quite a complex one. So it was, I think, splits the two and a half mile stretch into about five or six different sections, each with a drone flight capturing, I think we captured probably about 1700 images um, for each, each before and after inspection, and then merge those into single or high definition definition images. So you've got a record of what that riverbank looked like before you started work and afterwards. So that was challenging, but good fun. Cool. And you would have, and you said you've got to be within 15 meters of that drone. So I assume you had to walk that whole two and a half mile stretch. No, the drone can be within 50 meters of people outside the pilot's control. The drone itself has to be within 500 meters of the pilot. Ah, 500 meters, right. So you didn't have to walk that far then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I did in that one. um, You also have to, one of the other regulations, you have to maintain visual line of sight. So. 500 meters, it's really quite hard to see a drone against a cloudy sky. Um, mm. In that case, I would have actually walked some of the riverbank to make sure I could have a good view of what the drone, where it was, what it was doing, um, and there's nothing going to go wrong with it. Okay. So then that customer then would sit down and, and just kind of view that. Was it a video, did you say, or was it pictures? No, it was pictures. So they had lots pictures. of that, 1,700 individual. Oh, yeah, you did say that. Sorry. Yeah. And then they were merged into, I think I did six separate sections. Mm. Um, of two, three hundred each, so you have 500 meter stretches, roughly. Um, And they just went through that with a fine tooth comb, I suspect. Yeah, and then they can then, if any questions come up, they can say, well, this is what it was before, and this is what it is now, and actually, there's no issue. Hopefully not. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's cool. Would you do all the image processing as well afterwards, or? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. Wow, cool. How long have you been in in the game now? So I've had my um, CA permission for about just just about nearly two years. Yeah, and and it seems to be like massively progressive. Has a lot changed within that short amount of time, that two years? Um, I guess the technology's changed, the capabilities of the drones have changed. Um, there is more awareness of them, sometimes mm. good, sometimes not so good. <laughs> but I think they are becoming more mainstream, and I think they're still, you know, I think a lot of people in the drone industry, so it's saturated as... 6,000 qualified drone operators out there. Okay. But I think my experience is there's many, many more potential clients who could you be using drones to improve their operations uh, and get value who haven't done yet. Mm. Okay, so <clears throat> someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I think I might be able to use a drone for something. What, what, What's the kind of like a, a list of what um, you could like with a drone for a customer does that make sense is that a, a short enough list a long enough list you don't yeah. have to kind of list it all but yeah it depends a bit what they what they need um mm. so there's if you want if you have a you know, i guess take an example of a big country house hotel for instance you could have the drone for, com- for promotional photographs or video you okay. could use it for a very detailed roof inspection um if it's an old building Chances are it might have some issues that would be quite difficult to get to any other way. 
Um, they might want to be building a new wing or a new building. You could actually map the land. You can do you know, use that as part of the planning process. Use it as a, to aid the planning process. Um, you can do earthwork volume measurements. So if there's some earthworks going on and you have a big stockpile of earth or gravel or whatever it might be, you can do volume measurements using the drone data as well, um, which is really quite clever. Mm. Uh, so there's quite a big range. You can do a 3D model of, your, of that building as well, whether it's for promotional purposes or to, for the architects to use if they're developing new areas. Um, yeah, it all comes down really to what the clients clients after. Mm. There's quite a lot they can do already, though, and that's um, yeah. It, it seems like it's just it's a really progressive kind of industry that it's growing really quickly and um, not 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 changing, but like people are starting to realise it. And I suppose as the the curiosity of the client, I suppose will will, will force the industry to go somewhere where they might never thought. Like client yeah. coming along, knocking on the door, being like, "Can you do this?" Yeah, no, I, I don't know, but let's give it a go, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Oh, that I mean, yeah, we could go on. I could go on and chat about this for ages. I love talking to people that like really know their stuff about one specific thing, and I could just get chat on for hours and hours. What what kind of like is there is there any kind of job that you haven't had yet, but you love like you would love a client to ring you up and be like right rennie i want you to do this can you do it like have you got that one thing that you've not managed to grab few, onto yet yeah there's a few sort of proposals out there at the moment which would be interesting ones would be seeing through a project a large construction project from beginning to end so oh, going okay, to cool, site yeah. so once a month for instance actually doing a modeling doing a mapping survey and using the drone data effectively as a progress report so that mm. data can then be shared amongst the contractors the subcontractors the client the funders the financiers um, to show what's happened, they can use it to measure progress, sort of visually, and actually do some real-world measurements. Um, for instance, if they're digging earthworks or putting utility trenches in, you could use those overlay the drone map on the plans, make sure actually they're in the right place. So they can be used as a integral part of a construction project. So I say I've got you know some proposals out there, but are just kind of waiting for these things to hopefully <laughs> hopefully kick off. And then you see, mm. it's, it's uh, some really quite high-value services there. Mm, that would be quite cool, kind of see it all the way through from cradle to grave. Well, not really grave, but yeah. cradle to finish. <laughs> Hopefully not grave. It's data that is probably not possible to get any other way, but actually could make life easier for a lot of people involved in projects like that. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, as you were saying it, like, like kind of, you could probably use that, like, to manage subcontractors to be like, well, yeah. you know, we can performance manage ourselves and be like, okay, well, we had hundred houses here based on these collection of photos that took us this amount of time. You could see on the first week we built 50 houses, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it's, it's, I guess it's it things way. a bit more sort of even down into the detail of say the groundworks, you know, mm. if there's big, big volumes of earth to shift and somebody is being paid on those actual volumes, you can actually use a drone flight to measure those volumes before they're moved. Okay. Um, okay. So some pretty practical nitty gritty stuff that data that can be can be obtained and used as well as obviously the visual side of things. Mm. Is there any other jobs that you're thinking, oh, I really want to grab onto that, just that? 
there must be loads of stuff like stuff, thermal yeah. imaging stuff sounds awesome yeah thermal imaging i think is perhaps the next step the cameras a decent thermal imaging camera is quite a big investment so it's right i bet it is yeah that's lined up to to pay for it <laughs> yeah. i bet it is that sounds cool though like that'd be interesting just to see i suppose like in a video as to the yeah. difference but cool okay so if people are listening to this then and i think i've got something uh, I want to. I want to kind of get in contact with Rennie and um, levitate aerial imaging and, and stuff like that. How would they kind of approach you? We'll put all the links in the description, obviously. But you just want to kind of give a quick run through of that kind of that birth of a job and, and how they would contact you yeah. and, and what's I mean, next. The easiest way is give me a call. Um, so zero two zero three four seven eight zero six zero nine or, or an email. Um, so that's to Rennie Campbell. It's R E N N I E. Campbell at levitate-aerial.co.uk and really just a quick you know, couple of sentences on what you're looking for and most importantly the location I can take a look uh, we can have a chat see what can be done awesome and we'll put a link to like your LinkedIn and stuff on the um, thing we'll, we'll put the, the phone number in the description as well um, but that was really interesting thanks Renny good no, I enjoyed it okay guys I hope you enjoyed that Rennie really knows his stuff and it was a really interesting conversation. I was quite impressed with how much we could actually use drones for um, and, and actually impressed with how much um, it takes to kind of be a drone pilot. I genuinely had the naive opinion that you could just go and buy a drone down the shop and, and off you go. Um, so lots of changes going on in drone safety i think if you're a business owner if you're a property kind of owner especially as bigger properties maybe this is something for you to look into if it is i'll link the descriptions for levitate aerial imaging and rennie's linkedin page as well in the description so make sure you connect with him check him out and give him a call if you are interested in his services thanks for listening guys i hope you found this interesting catch you next week safe